0: The pandemic was a huge disruptor to our students and their learning. But we're seeing the return to in person learning for students this year has yielded some improvements in test scores in reading and math. Still, they're not to pre pandemic levels. Young students still seem to be struggling the most, especially those that were learning to read in the last two years. For more on how these test scores are rising, we'll speak to Sarah Rondazzo, education reporter at the Wall Street Journal.
1: For, uh... A while, people have been wondering: Will we ever give back to that level we would have been at had there been no pandemic? And kids just continue to learn at a normal pace. And it's looking like, you know, being out of school for the two years that many kids were out, it's hard to come back from. And you're not just going to have instant recovery. But so, what some of these studies are tracking now is looking at the growth throughout the school year. So this recent study showed: Okay, kids started in the fall. Still much further behind than they were the year before, but from fall to winter, they were really advancing like you would expect a kid to advance within a school year. So people are kind of talking now about growth and saying, okay, even if kids maybe don't have all the knowledge they would have had pre-pandemic, are they just, you know, from the beginning of the school year to the end, are they marching along and learning new skills throughout? And that's, you know, a measure of, of kids, you know, getting back to somewhat normal and, and doing doing well in school again. Right.
0: Yeah, our younger kids are still the ones that are set back the most. The test results that they looked at were 4.4 million students from kindergarten and 12th grade in uh, in reading and then 2.9 million students in math. And the way you put in the article, too, so early in the pandemic, kids were struggling with math skills the most. Uh, A lot of people said maybe because parents weren't as adept to help them with that. Right now, the reading, uh, now that you bring us bringing us to present time, the reading is still behind right now.
1: Yeah, and so especially, and so this, um, the test results came out from a company called Renaissance. It does something called the STAR test that is an optional test districts can do to help um, measure assessment throughout the year. And so all 50 states, there's kids who take it. And so it was a smattering from across the country of, of kids who take these STAR tests. And what they found is that the kids who really only have had a pandemic education, those kindergarten and first graders, especially those trying to learn to read in that period, are really struggling you know in all of their growth and so those who haven't yet learned to read really had the lowest growth scores of any of the cohort that they looked at and so there's a bit of a concern about those kids who are still learning to read or haven't yet learned to read and you know kind of where things go for them because learning to read is crucial for pretty much your entire life as yeah. you can imagine once you get to 3rd or 4th grade they say you stop learning to read and start reading to learn and so if you don't have the learning learning to read part down, you can't read your science textbook and your social studies
0: right. and everything else. Everything is uh, built upon that base learning right there. So yeah, third grade and fourth grade are really critical right there. You know, there was a lot of students that attended this a uh, program. It's called the Institute of Reading Development. They're a literacy organization. and They said about 49% of those entering first grade this school year were reading below expectations. So just kind of illustrating, you know, those kids that were doing that pandemic Reading, learning for the first time, uh, it was just very difficult for it to click for them.
1: Yeah, that's definitely what the institute found. And things like phonics and just learning—do you know the sound k? Do you know the sound duh? You know, students are having to go over that a, at a later age than than maybe some of them would have before. And so there's a few you know building blocks in learning to read. Phonics is one of them, and there's a few others. And teachers are really having to kind of start at the basics again and make sure kids have all those building blocks so they can really learn how to read.
0: I know there was a lot of conversations going on throughout the pandemic that had a lot to do with safety and everything. But, you know, uh, seeing the declines, seeing now the rebounds, although they're not to the pre-pandemic levels, right? We're talking about that. It really illustrates how important the the value of in-person instruction is for our kids. And you spoke to a number of teachers and administrators also. You know, they, even for themselves, they were pretty... Alarmed when they came back and they saw how stunted they were academically and emotionally.
1: Yeah, I spoke with districts in Nebraska, Florida, and California, so a cross section, and all of them said that the in-person element, returning in person, really has just helped hugely um, for some kids when they're home. You know, teachers and administrators were noticing they just, especially the early le- early readers. they just weren't talking to as many people in the day. And so they just weren't able to even practice their language skills in the way that you are in a classroom and things are being asked of you and you're turning to talk to your friend next to you. And so just physically being present and being able to engage and get more feedback, doing hands-on games versus just reading, it all really has helped get Mm -hmm. kids back. And certainly everyone did the best they could. Districts did everything they could to adapt to the online learning. And I think a lot of Good development and especially good tech developments happened where now more kids have access to computers and the like. So it wasn't all bad, but there's a lot to be said of being in person um, and how that helps educate kids.
0: And how do we continue to get back? You know, some of the people you spoke to said they'd like to maybe teach fewer concepts so that the kids could have a deeper learning of whatever they're teaching rather than trying to cram everything in, uh, trying to make up for so much stuff. Yeah,
1: I think people are trying to rethink, okay, what does it mean to get back to normal? Are we going to really try to tick off every single box of what someone should have had if if they were having a quote, normal education? Or should we just keep moving forward and just try to continue to engage and and give kids lessons and, um, you know, go maybe like that one educator said, go maybe deeper on a few concepts rather than trying to teach every single thing on a chapter test. And so I think educators are looking now and figuring out what you know, going forward to get back to some kind of normalcy. And I think yeah. overall they're saying as long as kids are continuing to grow and continue to advance, that's what we can do right now. And that's a good good progress and 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 good for the kids.
0: Right. Yeah. Some hopeful news now. Hopefully we can continue to take those gains back again. Sarah Randazzo, education reporter at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing. Thank you. <laughs> This week, we also saw the FDA authorize a second COVID booster shot for people 50 and older and those 12 and older that have weakened immune systems. The decision was mostly based on data from Israel that shows it could be life-saving for those over 60, but only has marginal benefits for younger people. The FDA will also be meeting very soon to discuss the long-term booster strategy for the rest of the population. For the latest in all this, we'll speak to Carolyn Johnson, science reporter at The Washington Post.
2: As a lot of people have been anticipating, a second booster, which would be a fourth shot for most people, was authorized today. And that means that if you're 50 or older, you can probably pretty soon, it may take a while for pharmacies to get updated, but um, go get a fourth shot. And one reason that it's being targeted this way to people 50 and older is because they're really trying to protect people who are at greatest risk of severe illness, hospitalization, and the bad outcomes. This shot isn't intended to like end the pandemic, or even, you know, like, we're just trying to kind of shore up protection amongst those who are
1: most vulnerable.
0: Yeah, it definitely has shaped up that way. We're just kind of trying to get by, I think, you know, vaccine makers are working on uh, a shot that can attack, you know, all coronaviruses. They're, they're looking forward to the future for a lot of that stuff. And this is just kind of getting us by in the meantime. And, and you know, they're looking at what's going to happen with this. It's not necessarily an explicit recommendation that people get this. This is just giving some the opportunity. And a lot of it has to do with the way these boosters are working right now. They're really not protecting us, let's say, from another infection. They do give us some more antibodies and all that. But as you mentioned, it's really just for those at risk of severe illness
2: well it's it's almost such a a bifurcated situation you have some people who just want boosters they want to kind of perfect their immunity their personal immunity and kind of get on with their lives and those people are just super interested and i think you know if you're younger and you don't have a compromised immune system you don't have to worry if you've been boosted necessarily and particularly i guess one thing That wasn't really addressed, but has been something experts I've been talking to have been thinking is that if you got uh, if you were one of the tens of millions of people that got an Omicron infection over the winter surge. You know, that's functioning as a boost to your immune system. So you don't need to necessarily be very worried about getting that fourth shot right away or potentially at all. So the longer term booster strategy is still being worked out. And part of this, I know it's unsatisfying to people, but, you know, we just don't know the future. And so we're, we're working with uh, in an information gap. And in that gap, you have to make judgments. So this is a judgment intended to protect people who are at risk from the worst things that can happen. And then next week, the FDA is gonna meet and they're gonna talk more about kind of a longer term booster strategy, perhaps what we could see in the fall. You know, what even the goalposts might be for like a booster shot. You know, there's a lot of questions we still have to kind of work out because we may switch the vaccine to provide potentially more durable protection. Um, but a lot of these studies are also still ongoing. So I know it's like everyone's kind of waiting for what they should do next. But right. I think this was clearly targeted to segment of the population.
0: Now, a lot of the information that was used in support of this booster shot, this additional booster shot, uh, has been limited and mixed. A lot of it comes from information we got from Israel, where they're already doing this fourth booster shot. So tell me a little bit about that, uh, because you know a lot of people say that You know, that fourth shot might not be providing that much more protection than that third shot. So just fill us in on what was happening in Israel with with all this. Our data
2: is super imperfect. So it's really hard to draw conclusions. Every study has flaws. And these are also like really early studies. We haven't necessarily seen them go through all like the rigorous peer review that would be normal before you saw these results. But because of the urgency, we're seeing... Clearly, some Israeli data that shows for people over 60, which is the people they offered fourth shots, that during the Omicron wave there, they saw a protection against death and severe illness. So there's a number of Israeli studies showing that. And of course, there are kind of critiques of them and stuff. But this is a lot of the kind of impetus for today's action. Separately, they also had boosted some healthcare workers in Israel, which are people of all ages. And there is where you saw this more mixed and also potentially transient um, effect of these boosts. So first of all, when, you, when they extended a four shot to people who weren't necessarily older and at risk, they found, yeah, your antibodies go up, back up kind of like to the third dose level, which is good but it doesn't protect those people against infection very well. And because those people are at very low risk for uh, severe illness, you know, they all had mild or negligible symptoms. Right. So even if they had three doses or four doses, so, you know, you're there, it becomes more uncertain. You know, there's not nearly an impetus to boost those people. And there's also some data showing that that infection protection erodes very quickly over about a two-month period. So if we're talking about vaccinating ahead of COVID waves, we have to really think about the goals, the practicality of things. Federal health officials have been pretty optimistic so far, I guess, that BA2, though we have to keep our eye on it, may not cause a huge surge. That remains to be seen. But, you know, if we're talking about timing, it gets super complicated because then you're talking about predicting the future.
0: Right. This uh, action by the FDA, as you mentioned, is very targeted to the those most at risk right now. But it will be interesting to see what that longer term plan is going to be for everybody, for the rest of the population. So we'll keep an eye out. Carolyn Johnson, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In some UFO news, last June, the Department of Defense released its much-hyped UFO report, and it landed without much information. Now, an activist has published a longer and redacted report that members of Congress were briefed with. While still lacking a lot of clear information, we did get an idea of other sections in the report that focus on possible new advanced technologies, and most interestingly, the most common shapes of UFOs observed. For more on what we can glean from this redacted report, we'll speak to Jason Kebler editor-in-chief at Motherboard.
3: The original report that came out last June was a huge bummer. It was like, it was really hyped, as you said. It was supposed to detail the Pentagon's Advanced Aerial Threat Intelligence Program, which was this huge UFO program that was revealed by the New York Times back in 2017. And then it came out and it was basically like, yes, we have this program. There were 143 sightings between 2004 and 2021, but we have no idea what they are. Could be Russia, give us more money. Like it, it very much read like a plea <laughs> for more funding. Totally. Yeah. Um, but this guy, uh, John Greenwald at the Black Vault, which is this uh, transparency organization filed for a mandatory classification review, declassification review, which is basically where you ask the government to say like, hey, did all of this need to be classified? And so the version that was released to the public was six pages. This classified version that was given to Congress was 24 pages. And yes, it's it's a lot more interesting. Um, unfortunately, it's a lot of it's redacted, but you can just tell from the titles of the different sections that the report that Congress got was way cooler than the one that the public got. Totally. Uh, for example, there's a section called common shapes of UFOs where it's like quite literally a photographs of UFOs. Uh, there's also a section called less common slash irregular shapes. So it's like, well, what are those shapes? Like, what, <laughs> right. what's in that report? What's so, behind the black box, you know?
0: So, so let me, let me read that. And then we can expand on it a little bit because it, this is kind of under a subheading of there are potential patterns that do emerge. Meaning these are the most commonly described shapes that they've seen. So I'm going to read from the redacted part, just real briefly. The most common shape described by military personnel in the reporting was a blank military aviators described many of these blank objects as blank or blank several sightings were blank and resembled shapes like a blank or a blank. So there's a lot of detail in there that we're not seeing. And, you know, in some of the videos that were released more recently in reporting by the New York Times and everything, a lot of them focused on this tic-tac shape. That was one of the big ones that we saw recently. And obviously the mind begins to wander. We know all the other things, the flying saucers, all that stuff. So they have a set of things that uh, that we just don't know yet.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that Obviously, anytime that you're talking about UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomena, which is the new sort of uh, terminology that's being used by most people in the industry, there's always this idea of like, what does the government know that it's not telling us? Is there some sort of cover up like what's actually going on? And I think that the mind can wander in a lot of different ways. But this report shows that obviously the U.S. government does know more than it's letting on. I don't think that what's behind the black boxes in this report the redacted sections are like hey we have proof of aliens like there's nothing that suggests that that's the case but it does suggest that there is a lot more that they know like more specifics some of the other sections of the report that have been redacted talk about individual instances or case studies of specific ufos that were cited by uh navy pilots which we know that some of the videos that have been released came from navy pilots but It seems as though there are additional incidents that the military and the U.S. government haven't talked about. There's also a section in here that says that the FBI has been helping the DOD basically investigate these to see if there's any sort of criminal activity associated with them. So obviously... You know, some people think that these things are aliens. The government has never said that. Primarily, the, the theory is that it's some sort of classified U.S. project, you know, like military right. aircraft or aircraft from another country. And I guess there have also been a lot of cases where a UFO is reported and then it ends up being a consumer drone or a weather balloon that is partially deflated, or something like that. And so I guess the FBI is investigating it. It looks like here there's four different boxes. I don't know if it's four different cases that the FBI did investigate or is investigating, but that's kind of like how I read it it seems
0: like and that's definitely interesting to know so I mean it's the FBI is kind of like that lead agency when something like this happens so when you're thinking of men in black or whatnot it's probably FBI agents that are coming at you and and, uh, you know to these other sections that we got a little bit more information on too. another section a handful of UAP appear to demonstrate advanced technology so this is where those weird movements in the skies that a lot of these Navy pilots describe these weird movements this is kind of addressed in that section, you know, an object, you know, flying in the wind where the wind isn't affecting it at all. You know, these propulsion systems that you don't really see what it is. You know, you don't see an engine on it or anything. So they they describe some of this in these redacted versions, obviously, that we can't really get an eye on.
3: On one hand, it's really frustrating that this stuff is redacted. On the other hand, I think it gives us a framework for the types of information that the U.S. government finds interesting. It's like, obviously, you, the mind can wander, like we have said a few times here, about what might be getting redacted here but at least now we know kind of what they're investigating and now that we know that this longer version of the report has gone through a declassification review it's not outside the realm of possibility that someone will leak it at some point or that the public will see the full version of the report at some point which is obviously something we'd be super interested in it's like you want to know what what's there
0: definitely so we'll keep an eye out for all of this but just some interesting more tidbits that we got Jason Kebler, Editor-in-Chief at Motherboard. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks so much. Have a good one.
0: Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.